Finally got to do our new podcast series, Clues from the Keynote, and I'm really excited. Yeah, so I had the interview with Tina Harris, who's an uh, associate professor at the University of Amsterdam, and she uh, she is a person with a very wide range of research interests and very interesting ones as well. It's uh, a lot about trade and mobility, aviation, material culture, and the Himalayas and stuff like that. So there's uh, she's an expert on a lot of things. And <laughs> I love was... how you said like aviation, materiality, yeah. and the Himalayas. And stuff yeah, like that. <laughs> that 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 just shows the range, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really does. It yeah, really does. yeah. But uh, but it's amazing how she combines these things in her research questions it's uh it's very interesting and she's just also a very well of course she's brilliant um but also just very a grounded person and uh pretty cool she plays the drums by the way and she has played in multiple bands so um she actually talked a lot about how important it is in a lifelong career to create these creative spaces that is not at all academia and just so far away from that way of thinking intellectually you know yeah yeah and yeah. I thought that was really nice point right yeah. and it's also really nice to hear someone say that who made a career out of it exactly. I mean one thing is to like be a student and because there's so much work for us often mm. right it takes up so much time and you know oftentimes I've had that feeling where I knew that I I really needed to engage with something outside of academia but I felt like that wasn't sort of encouraged or uh proper or something mm. yeah it's really nice that that um that someone actually says that and encourages that um I think it's important. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And it's just, well, we talked a lot about how when you engage in something that you really love and that you want to be engaged with, it just kind of soaks up your life in a way. So you have to pull yourself out of it. Also because um, she has some comments about how competitive it can be and how much pressure there is on people working in academia. So it was just a very, yeah, a very uh, humble opinion about how to make a career in this and how to make yourself last as a whole person. Right. I really yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm thinking right now, you know, um, at Comunitas, we sort of, we, we try and make those like conversations around anthropology and human security um but those conversations actually when you read through the the things that people write and talk about it's actually oftentimes about what kind of other things in their lives matter yeah to the way that they do anthropology the way that they do human security mm. 
I think that's that's brilliant that you know like that becomes part of that conversation. It says so much about how you know if you are the instrument of the research that you do, how important it is to maintain yourself as a whole person. Thank you for having me on this. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, my current work is is interesting because it is is as you heard in the talk that I gave recently about aviation, and um, this is a very strange kind of shift that I've made in my research over the past, I would say, five or ten years. Because previously I was working on cross border trade in the Himalayas, um, and that was the work that I did basically for my for my PhD. Um, so that was in the that was in the, the 2000s. And I was even introduced to some of that work uh, as an undergraduate um, on a study abroad program that I was very lucky to go to. Um, in I'll give you the date because then you can date me 1997 <laughs> as an undergraduate. Um, and I was always interested in the mobility of things and people and ideas across borders and how very much inspired by kind of Arjuna Bhattarai's social life of things volume, uh, the edited volume. I was very interested in how objects change meaning depending on whose hands they, they pass through. Um, and so that's what I spent most of my dissertation work on, and then after that is as well. But then what made me really shift was a number of things. So first of all, I was still interested in infrastructure. Um, and so, of course, you know, traveling along roads in the Himalayas that, you know, you see sort of infrastructure uh, <laughs> firsthand and also how infrastructure may or may not work according to plan and what happens uh, there. Um, and then secondly, due to, you know, and I'm not going to go into this in so much detail, but, you know, extreme political sensitivities uh, to do sort of uh, research in Tibet, even though my work was on, on trade, which is sort of ostensibly not very, very political, it became more and more difficult to meet with friends um, in Tibet itself, especially after the protests um, in 2000, in the sort of, yeah, before 2010 or so. And so um, I thought it wouldn't be a, a good idea to continue to continue that. And then actually it was an, an impossible in some ways. Um, and um, and it wasn't just that I just, you know, worried a lot for some of the people who I, you know, was in touch with that just having an innocuous conversation can get, you know, sort of people into into trouble. Um, um, so in that case, then I started thinking a lot about, <laughs> about infrastructure. Um, and I realized that there wasn't very much in anthropology on the anthropology of aviation. Um, there are a couple of um, articles by a guy named Alan Bateau, who works on, on, on organizational anthropology, uh, and a lovely couple of lovely ethnographies out there. Uh, there's one by Christine Yano um, on flight attendants, uh, Asian American flight attendants, and then there's a historical um, piece on sort of the colonialism of, of air infrastructures by Chandra Bimal, which is a more his, 
I think she's an historian. Don't don't quote me if I'm wrong. Um, but in any case, um, it, it, you know, part of it was personal as well. So I'll get into kind of the personal reasons for this. My my mom was a flight attendant for Cathay Pacific Airlines in the 1970s. Um, and of course, growing up, we'd have all these stories of what it was like in the 1970s to be a flight attendant, uh, which of course was very different back then. Uh, very sort of, you know, sort of elite. Uh, at least the the routes that she worked on uh, were between Hong Kong and Japan uh, and Australia and Indonesia as well. And um, so she had all these stories about what it was like to, to, to fly and how, how things have changed between then and, and, and now, significantly privatization of airlines or you know, open skies policies, et cetera, uh, but also how that changed her working life. So she, this is a long-winded way of saying that actually I started becoming very interested in uh, how people not only sort of manage air infrastructure, but sort of manage manage the skies and how do people working in aviation, um, ground, uh, ground handling companies, baggage handlers, um, or those like air traffic controllers and so forth, uh, are dealing with great changes in aviation. Um, so I think there was a little bit of an overlap between maybe the stuff on trade and the stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm doing now, um, but it's been very difficult to switch, switch fields. If anybody else you know, out there has thought about shifting research topics, it's quite, it's quite something. And now I'm doing a lot of it in Europe, which is more practical than anything else. My family's here. I live in Amsterdam. Um, you know, also there are a lot of fantastic junior scholars in the Himalayas that, you know, it's not my place to do research there anymore. So I'm thinking that more and more now. So, um, you know, I've thought of it, I mean, it's, it's been true for a long time, but, uh, but now I'm shifting research, both regions and topics, and it takes a long time. Yeah, I could uh, I could imagine that. But uh, as you say, it's uh, it's about tailoring your work life with anything else that is also present in your life. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to write about this some um, some somewhere else as well. So I'll, I'll send you a link when I when I do. But a lot of it also was this sort of, you know, you do your dissertation research and sometimes you're or at least I was sort of normalized to think, oh, well, you've got to go away for research for a year or two years, stay there and then come back. Right. And I know that's shifting now, but it was it was still I kind of internalized this idea that that's what research was and that's what field research was. And then so after I ended up um, very happily getting a tenure track job and then having a kid and then moving, I just thought to myself, I can't do research anymore, which was of course, a, you know, not the right thing to, to think, but when you're sort of conditioned to think, well, that's what field research is. I felt like 
there were no other options and I was really almost you know almost rethinking what you know who I was and why I was in academia because I thought I can't do research anymore but of course the answer is well you can't do research in that way anymore there are other ways to do research and in, in, in different kinds of time frames um and so but that took a while to kind of for me to figure that out also with negotiating sort of family and work and 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 all sorts of things so. that uh, that sounds like a full schedule <laughs> <laughs> and uh speaking of uh, research mm. um it actually leads me to my first question to you mm. yeah so how did you encounter anthropology and what do you consider to be the main contribution of the kind of knowledge that one might make with anthropological methods? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think I first heard the word anthropology when I was in Japan, actually, which is where I went to high school. But I don't think I thought more of it. It was sort of introduced in one of my, my classes by uh, a teacher uh, who was teaching a sort of theory of knowledge class and it sort of came up. Um, but then I didn't think anything more of it. And when I went to university, uh, this was in the United States, um, I took a lot of religious studies courses. And the reason why I took a lot of religious studies courses was because I wanted to do anything, learn anything other than the religion I was sort of brought up in. So I like, angrily rebelled against that and then wanted to learn about all sorts of other religions. Um, but then, of course, that led me a little bit into anthropology. And I took a course, and this was my, as an undergraduate, I went to a university called Wesleyan University in Connecticut in the United States. And, and there was a ethnographic film professor named um, Akos Oster. And we took a course called ethnographic film. And this was a sort of a first year course. And I just was, I, my mind was blown. I thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And so, you know, he, he, he had this course where every week or twice a week, we would watch this sort of quote, you know, well-known ethnographic films from the, you know, 60s, 70s, uh, 80s, and then some more, you know, sort of recent ones from the early 90s, or at least at that time, it was the early 90s. And um, I thought, oh, wow, you know, you can, you can learn about people this way. And one of the things we learned, of course, in, the, in that introductory film course was that you didn't necessarily have to have that sort of voiceover telling you what to believe you could you could see and observe and kind of and 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 figure out uh, you know what was happening for yourself and other people had different interpretations of what was happening and then of course there was the the filmmaker's gaze and and the editing and everything and that and that to me just just absolutely blew my mind and so I ended up taking more and more and more anthropology courses uh, at university. And I thought, no, this is, this is sort of where, where I want to be because I was so interested in how, you know, 
you can look at the same process or the same event or the same object from so many different perspectives and then get sort of a more sort of in-depth view, more complex nuanced view of the same phenomenon through different windows, so to speak. Um, and I think that of course is that that is the, that is the the thing about anthropology is when I talk to people who are not anthropologists, say who anthropologists, excuse me. So those who work maybe in industry or 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 you know in government or in ministries or something, and they say, "Oh, what do you do?" And I say, "What we what we do." Sometimes people's eyes kind of glaze over, and they're like, eh, "Yeah, anthropology." archaeology, bones, but more and more and more, I'm getting people go, you know, saying, wow, <laughs> that would be really useful. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking useful. This is the first time I've, 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 or the first time in, in a while that I've heard, well, okay, that we're, we're useful. And I said, well, yeah, no, absolutely. This sort of idea where you can talk to a whole bunch of different stakeholders, find out about their own experiences, their own perspectives on the same thing, um, and then figure out kind of where the, the bottlenecks of the tensions lie. So I'm thinking, well, hey, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and, and methodologically, of course, I think that was also part of your question as well. Methodologically, um, it's very, uh, it's very useful as well. The sort of, I guess, research method of observation, participant observation, spending a lot of time hanging out with people and finding out that what they claim they do isn't what they actually do. And that sort of gap between when people say, Oh well, I, I, I never, I never go to restaurants on weekends, right? And you're like, oh, okay, fine. And then you're hanging out with them, and you're like, wait, we're going to a restaurant every weekend. I'm confused by this. Um, that kind of, you know, sort of teasing apart that dissonance is really, really quite fun. So why do, why do people say they do things, but you see them doing different things? <laughs> <laughs> and I find that very useful, right? Yeah, so. and maybe that's the tension we're working in, like mm -hmm. um, this gap between what people say they do and what they actually do. Yeah, and maybe we should be better at promoting this skill more broadly. Perhaps, yeah. Although, of course, what there's layers to what they actually do, because is that actually what they actually do and so forth, yeah. but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> yeah um well this brings me uh to my next question uh something i would just like for you to reflect upon sure uh what are some important insights and traditions that anthropology might take from disciplines such as human geography i know that you're working with this mm -hmm. Yeah, so I am indeed, and I love that you asked that because I'm such a hybrid human geography, human geography slash cultural anthropology person, um, and I love it. I feel very happy, um, kind of being in in 
you know, with one foot in each sort of subfield. And partly the reason, uh, the reason for this is actually, so I went to, my graduate schooling was in an anthropology department, but my two sort of main supervisors were geographers. My, my, my one sort of main supervisor was um, the late Neil Smith, who's a, you know, sort of a, 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 a geographer, human urban critical geographer, Marxist geographer. And of course, so theoretically, all of the stuff that I kind of really delved into in, in graduate school was from geography. Um, and then so I used those theoretical frameworks to inform the ethnographic work that I was I was doing. And I've I've since then I've always done that. Um, and yeah, I I, <laughs> I absolutely love um, going to geography conferences with my geography colleagues. And and there's some of us are always sort of these hybrid anthropology geography people. So what I guess I tend to do in my research is a very familiar anthropological thing in that, you know, I look at something very specific, like a single object or a process or, or event, and I trace how the people involved in its use or its production deal with wider political, social, environmental phenomena. Right. And geography here is handy because you can really they put a really obviously a very heavy emphasis on space and place. And so, you know, I ask myself, OK, so how do pe how do people deal with this object process event, whatever, in a village or in a city or a region or a nation or globally? Right. And there experiences or interactions with with whatever this 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 thing is shapes the very structure of the village or the city or the nation or the region uh that they're in and of course the shifts and this changes so i'm always always you know whether I, i'm doing ethnographic work but i always have an eye to how that relates to sort of location space place um and not that those those three concepts are are, are exactly the same, but but um, yeah, it, it, it's it, I can't I can't I guess I can't do anthropology without geography now. <laughs> I'm afraid I afraid I can't. Sorry. <laughs> I think that's a great hybrid identity to have, actually. So I would like to zoom in a little on your mm -hmm. particular field experience as an anthropologist yeah. slash geographer. <laughs> so I would like to ask you if you have a story, an experience or so, where mm. you learned something that might have shifted your understanding of the field, what you might call an ethnographic moment. Yeah. The first one I wrote a bit in a, I have a, in, in a book that, that came out in 2013. And that was when I was working with these traders who would trade, who used to sort of trade uh, goods between uh, Sikkim in, uh, in India and Tibet. And I was talking to a trader, an older one, who was trying to remember and recall the uh, route that he took between the two, the two places. 
Um, and I thought to myself, as sort of a, as a as an, sort of budding ethnographer, I thought, okay, I'm going to use the methods that I set out to do in my research proposal, which was uh, one of my methods was mapping, cognitive mapping, or you know, sort of creating your own maps. And I thought to myself, I'm going to go by the book, and I'm going to ask these traders to draw their own maps of what they remember, you know. And I asked, I asked him, and we were pretty friendly at this point, but I asked him like, you know, okay, can you, you know, can you just sort of draw your, your trajectory or your, your path from, you know, sort of this point in Sikkim to this point in Tibet? And he, and he was like, eh, no, I can't. And I thought, oh no, oh no, my method's not working, right? <laughs> Which was of course like, now I've learned, oh, right. Okay, well, you've got to shift a bit. Um, and I thought, oh no, oh no, why is it not working? And it was only later that there were a number of things that I discussed with a Tibetan friend who was with me at the, the time. And, and I first asked, I said, was well, it because, you know, I've asked him, I've sort of put him on the spot. I've asked him to draw a map. And she was like, well, yeah, that could have been it. But, you know, didn't you hear what he said afterwards? He said, I, I, no, I just can't do it. And the answer was, Okay, maybe on one hand, because, you know, drawing the map, you're sort of putting somebody on the spot and, you know, I'm sort of a researcher asking somebody to draw a map that's a little bit, you know, disconcerting. I don't think I'd, I'd like it if somebody asked me to do that in retrospect. <laughs> so, yes, I scrapped that method. But but one of the reasons why was that sort of what he said was I, I just can't, simply can't do it. And only later in conversations with my friend and also with, with him later on, it was that it just a map didn't capture what what actually happened and the experiences and just you know a map just simply that kind of rendering of of going from point a to point b didn't capture every single little detail of of actually going across mountains and stuff and so we would rather is that you know would i just rather tell the story of it right so that was a kind of a moment where i thought okay right okay you know, um, certain methods work in certain circumstances and not in others. And you have to really kind of work this out. And this is where sort of methods and theory come together. Um, and I think that that was a real sort of, first of all, I was really sort of embarrassed. Um, and I thought, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> like, what have I done? But actually, in retrospect, it was also kind of a, an experience that I thought, well, actually, okay, you know, a method like that was useful in other circumstances, right? So like the planning of an urban playground or something like that, but not, not, not for this. And so it was sort of learning that you have to do sort of sometimes trial and error with sort of methods that you think are going to be creative and, and wild and change things. Maybe that's a good example of how this trial and error process can also lead to the theory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And it led to some such great conversations later on um, with, you know, yeah, ab ab about, about that. And I ended up sort of changing the way that I used maps in my research and I used them in a very different way um, based on these stories and these narratives that people uh, uh, people were, you know, yeah, these stories that people were telling me. So, um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's a really nice story, I think. And 
For the next question, I would like to zoom out a bit on disciplinary practice. So with the pandemic, ethnographic fieldwork as we know it has been deeply complicated in some ways. And I know that you have some personal recognition with this and us as students definitely have also felt this. So my question is if you have any advice on how to move forward in these well, quite uncertain times and any ideas or thoughts about finding and creating fields in a world with very different levels of lockdown and constraints on social encounters. Yeah, I mean, my first piece of advice perhaps would be just try not to be so hard on yourself. I think that's really sometimes difficult to remember or difficult to sort of put into practice when you're in academia. That's really hard sometimes because it's a very, tends to be sometimes competitive and I think that's very icky, but, <laughs> um, and if it's any consolation, everybody, you know, most of your lectures, <laughs> most of your lecturers are not motivated or haven't been motivated during this time at all. Um, so, I mean, there were days, there have been days where I'm just, you know, just thought I can't, I, everything has been delayed. Uh, I can't write. Um, I want to, but I can't. And then another day goes by and then I'm just feeling, a, you know, a bit less or during these, these times. And of course, you're worried about all sorts of people, you know, colleagues and, and, and people who are ill and, and um, you know, not be, being limited in what you can do now, you know, and I think especially for students right now, it's such a hard time because you put together a research plan, for instance, and then you can't do what you originally, what your heart felt, you know, your, your heartfelt desire of doing a particular research project, you know, the idea that you might not be able to do it. And of course, if you have these time frames where you're in a program that's only one year or two years or four years, and you can't do what you wanted to do, that's, that's got to be heartbreaking in a, in a way. Um, and then you have to have a plan B. And if plan B doesn't work out, then you have to ha have a plan C. And that was always the case in the past. You know, you might have a, you know, not get a visa, a research visa or something like that. But it's, it's I mean, it's even more, it's amplified even more so now. Right. Um, so don't be too hard on yourself. And there are ways and there's some really interesting things going on um and a lot of these fantastic creative plan b's or plan c's come out when you've got a good group of peers a good group of colleagues who you can vent with but also those who don't take things too seriously because i if there's one thing that i find uh is that I like to surround myself with supportive, fun people um, who are very aware of how sort of academia works and um, can navigate it in a way that is not competitive as much as possible, right? So people who help each other, people who read your stuff, you know, people who will sit and 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 go through maybe a paper of yours and say oh you know have you thought of this have you thought of that oh what about this idea um and i think those are the friends that i had in in, in graduate school um who i've stuck with 
now. I mean, we still, we're in different places around the world and we still comment on each other's papers or still kind of, you know, give each other, um, send each other emails when, when we've had successes. Um, those are the, those are the good ones <laughs> compared to, um, you know, some other just trying to get ahead, uh, you know, competitive individuals who don't really, you know, pay attention to anything but their own work. And that, that I find my own opinion, but I find that not very helpful when you're, when you're in, um, when you're in graduate school, yeah, or undergraduate even. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, try not to be too hard on yourself during this time and, you know, see if you can uh, get support from your, get by with a little help from your friends as, as, as the yeah. song goes. Well, I think that's, uh, that's uh, generally maybe just some good guidelines in this because, mm. uh, well, academia shouldn't be a vacuum and we should enhance this peer culture uh amongst us i definitely agree yeah what about what about your own work uh, what do you do when you encounter a day where the writing flow is just not working for you or plans are changed and research questions have to be altered and stuff like that yeah well let's see i don't know if some of you recognize yourselves in this but i'm one of these people that um in in uh well I also like to play video games and in sort of gaming world I um I would be called a completionist where one has to finish every little side quest uh, every little task um and so I make these to-do lists with tiny little tasks on them so that I feel you know like I've achieved something if I can cross off a little task which is write reference letter or you know, write email to so-and-so, which is, again, I don't think this is a very, uh, this is not advice. This is more like, this is what I, this is what I do. Um, and I'm not sure how helpful that is. I've started to learn to sort of in the morning tackle the one thing that I find uh, most daunting. I'm getting a little bit better at it. And I've been really inspired by this book, that I got actually, again, in graduate school called writing your dissertation in 15 minutes a day. And sort of the idea is that you create for yourself some sort of ritual where you sit down. Um, for me, I used to make a cup of uh, chai out of, you know, just from, from scratch. Um, and because that takes some time with the spices and the milk and things to boil and then sit down and just time myself for 15 minutes and try and write for 15 minutes, it can be anything. Um, and usually what happens is that you go beyond those 15 minutes if you get sort of hooked onto an idea. But if you don't, it's not the end of the world. Your 15 minutes are up, you can go and do something else. So I, I've been trying to do that when I write and sometimes that helps making a habit of it, I guess. Um, but days where there are just some days where like it just doesn't happen and I had all these plans on my to-do list and I've only crossed out two little ones and I feel like it's overwhelming and I've lost control I mean <laughs> that's that happens and I think again there's sort of the you know I shouldn't be too hard on myself so it happens the world's not going to end you know it's going to be all right um it's just 
you know, you know, it's if you think about that one thing that was due that day or due the day after or something like that, it's 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 important, but it's not the most important thing in the world right now. But I think it's gotten a little bit easier to think that way or to maybe care less as as I get a bit older, maybe it's age as well. It's still not great at it. So I'm learning. I'm learning and learning, learning, learning to to deal with that better. And let's see. Somebody told me once this was again, I think. Oh, who was it? Uh, I can't remember who it was, but it was a friend of mine or a or a lecturer or, or somebody again, back in graduate school, where the one thing they told me when I was trying to do sort of this overachieving thing of trying to get everything done and crossing everything off the list and, and doing, you know, the best I could on, on writing my, my dissertation, their um, advice was just like, dare to be adequate. And I thought, that's really useful. <laughs> Again, for people who tend to kind of want to, you know, to, 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 to edit themselves even before the words get out on the page. It's like, no, dare just to be adequate. It's sort of like that 15 minute thing. It's like, you just do what you can and then you can always clean it up later. You know, and adequate's okay. <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's some really fine reflections. And, and you uh, usually do better than adequate. I think that's the thing. You usually <laughs> do better than adequate if you dare to be adequate. Yeah, uh, but I, I definitely think that it's something that uh, we should be better at as students and lecturers as well. That it's okay. It's uh, there is pressure and chaos, and we should be able to navigate in it and uh, be a whole person afterwards as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the whole person. That's very important. Yeah. Well, thank you for those reflections. Um, my final question for you is, uh, do you have a hope or a piece of advice, a caution perhaps, to the future generations of anthropologists graduating in these years? And what does the near future of the work of Tina Harris herself look like? Ooh. Okay, so I think the, the piece of advice would probably be the, for those who tend to be perfectionists, the dare to be adequate thing. I think uh, it doesn't work for everybody, you know, because sometimes you know yourself, you know how you write by now, probably. Um, of course, you're still learning. I'm still learning how I write, but, you know, some people know that they kind of are adequate and then they have to kind of tailor it and, 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 and fix it up later. Others only write fully formed sentences, right? So everybody has their own style. So kind of, you know, whatever your own style is, I suppose, um, you know, um, know about that, or I guess learn learn more about it and see how you can you can work with it. And again, what I was also saying earlier is is, you know, take um, take comfort in the in the good people. Take comfort in the in the in the friends and the colleagues and those who are fun, who are you know who uh, who can make your graduate school life fun. Perhaps also, mm, if at all possible, cultivate something way outside of academia, something that doesn't involve anything to do with academia so you know people say a hobby or whatever it is that makes gives you joy where you can also have a community where you don't have to talk about work all the time so a community of people who know nothing about what you do 
that's great. And that's really important because you don't want them to know about what you do because you want to have other conversations with them. And I find that really helpful because, yeah, well, we can talk a little bit more about that later in relation to music. Um, so that's that. I think that's more than a hope or a piece of advice. It's like several things mushed together. Um, but your other question was about kind of the near future of the work of, of me. Um, and that has, there has been sort of a slight, a small development, especially during this period, this pandemic period. And that is, I was thinking again about the competitiveness of, of, of academia and, and how it's important to kind of, and I've always loved, I always loved what I do. So that's not a problem, right? But how do I really, really kindle that joy um, and do things that make me happy? Of course, that's research, um, teaching when it's not completely uh, overloaded. Um, but um, I love writing in a sort of a more creative way. And so I had this unbelievable rush of, of, of happiness when I thought to myself, okay, you know what I'm gonna do? You know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm gonna write, I want to write a nonfiction narrative, a narrative nonfiction book, right? Um, and I will say that this does come from a point of privilege, right? I'm tenured, so I should, I should add that I'm very aware that this is not possible in everybody's circumstances, but I thought, well, why can't a non-academic book be counted, right? And in, in, in terms of uh, as well, right? So universities are always talking about, about you know, sort of making your work accessible to a wider audience. This is precisely what, what something like that does. So it gave me a real sense of relief, like what, you know what, the next book I'm gonna write, it's going to be a narrative nonfiction book. It's going to be, you know, of course, about what I'm doing now about aviation. I do, you know, I will do my research for it, but I can write in a way that gives me joy. And of course, writing articles also gives me joy. Uh, and I'll be doing that on the side, but this is sort of the next project that um, I'm going to be doing in a little bit of a different way. Uh, so that's the plan. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if it if it comes to fruition. But I think that will be the near future of um, of of me, and it'll be sort of a book loosely called or based on sort of the future of flying or the future of aviation. And I'm very excited about it. So I've done some of the research for it already, but the next couple of years will be that I think. So check on me in a couple of years. Um, <laughs> oh, people who might be listening, I don't know. Um, let me know. I hope I've been able to, to do it and not, you know, and, and, and to continue sort of feeling this joy and happiness with, with that project. That sounds so interesting. Um, so speaking of uh, cultivating other hobbies, and uh, not only are you an anthropologist, Cameron also told me that I should ask you about your musical talent. And I know that you've played in bands. So yeah. maybe you can tell a little about Tina as a, as a musician. Yeah. So this, this links with that sort of that other thing I was mentioning about having sort of the life completely outside of academia or as much out of academia as, as, as possible. And I think what really keeps me or has kept me going um, is, yeah, playing in bands. Um, and I think the way that this all started was, well, when I was really little, I was, I was one of these kids that was sort of 
dare I say it, made to uh, play violin from a very, very early age. That was fine until I turned 10, 11. And I thought, no way. Like, I can't do this anymore. I don't like it. Um, and sort of around, yeah, 10, 11, 12, 13 or so, I, I, I stopped and <laughs> I said, I want to learn how to play the drums. And there was nobody really, and my mom was like, no, my dad was like, no, you know, that, that no, the drums, how can you in this apartment and how that's just a terrible idea. And then, yeah, fast forward to kind of, you know, university, I was in a, I was, I was in a punk band, um, uh, a bunch of other bands, and then I started playing with bands with with all um, um, women, people who identify as women, and uh, that was that was fantastic. It was really really fun. Um, I can't tell you how many little bands I've been, and I'm not like the world's I'm not the world's greatest drummer. I'm not like hello expert drummer over here. People knew I was doing, I was in a PhD program, but, you know, people would ask about it, but there really wasn't, in a good way, it was my escape, um, because I didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> I just wanted to play music, and I still do it. So now here in Amsterdam, I mean, we're on hiatus right now, of course, due to the pandemic, um, but I still, I still play drums, and it is a completely different way of thinking. And I think that's that's what I like about it. And, and, and I'm hoping you can tell me more about your own musical um, background as well, because it's a different part of the brain that's being used. I I I'm in a I mean I can't I can't use another term other than zone, right? I'm in this sort of zone that's completely um joyful and, and, and I can't I, I can't think in the same way that I think when I do my academic work. And I think it really, it trips me up sometimes when say the guitarist in the band that I'm in is like, okay, well, let's do that song in, you know, insert time signature here. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. That involves thinking, that involves thinking in an academic way. And I, I can't. This sort of intuitive feeling is maybe you come closest to it when you're doing field work or interviews or participant observation in the field, but there's just a completely different zone that I'm in. And that's what I appreciate. So I'm using a different part of my brain. Um, and it's almost like it's relaxing. <laughs> it, it is relaxing, absolutely relaxing, unless I, you know, I can't figure out a song or something, but it, it it's, uh, it, it, it's really this sort of, it relaxes the academic part of my brain. And then I go to the band part of my brain and, and um, yeah, the academic part of my brain needs the band part of my brain. So it's like, I don't know, is it dolphins that have two brains or something like that? Like I need both of those. Yeah, music does that. It takes you into sort of spaces that that are surprising, you know? Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. My name is Amaya Birk, and I'm looking forward to the next conversation.